0: Hello and welcome to the Ganatantra podcast. This is Sariunat Rajan
1: and And this is Alok Prasanna Kumar.
0: Thank you to all our listeners for tuning in. For those who are just getting familiar with the Ganatantra podcast, thank you for your patience. And uh, that is for our long-term listeners as well. Thank you for continuing to tune in and listen. Today, we have a very interesting discussion lined up. We are joined by the author of The Great Repression, The Story of Sedition in India, Chitranshul Sinha. Chitranchul is an author and a lawyer, and he's the author of this book, of course, The Great Sedition, which is a wonderful read on the history of sedition law in India, which is contained in section 124A of the Indian Penal Code. Uh, And for those who want to geek out, section 124A reads, whoever by words either spoken or written, or by signs or by visible representation or otherwise, brings or attempts to bring into hatred or contempt or excites or attempts to excite disaffection towards the government established by law in India, shall be punished with imprisonment for life, to which fine may be added, or with imprisonment, which may extend to three years, to which a fine may be added, or with fine. Anshu's book traces the history of the law and explores its use from colonial times when it was used to keep the independence movement in check. He also examines its contemporary use and how it's enmeshed into the mindsets and capacities of the police force today, and reflects on its future as well. The legality of Section 124A is in question in court now, and there has been some hopeful, and uh, yet Anshul argues uh, it's inadequate as well. Uh, There's an order on that, uh, but more on that soon, hopefully, in the course of this discussion. Uh, First of all, welcome, Anshul.
2: Thank you for having me, guys.
0: Uh, it's an absolute pleasure to have you. But, uh, you know, before we jump into a deeper discussion of the book itself, I uh, would love to hear from your perspective, uh, you know, both your about your journey and what got you into wanting to think about sedition a little bit more.
2: See, to be honest, I have never been a constitutional or a criminal lawyer in that sense. I've always been a commercial lawyer, civil lawyer, as the broader categories of a civil lawyer. But, um, uh, I started writing sometime in 2017, I started writing on and off, uh, some articles for some publications. So, uh, someone from Penguin who is a very dear friend, uh, just told me out of the blue, sitting in my, uh, room with my wife. And she just said, you should write a book. And I said, I don't know how to do that. I don't know what to write on. She's like, no, no, you will write a book. And then I don't know how, how things just fell into place. And, um. Sort of the Penguin guys, uh, they made that suggestion that you should write on sedition. So I started looking into it because to be honest, when they told me you should write on this one particular provision, I like, okay, fine, I'll write two pages and it'll be over. What will you write beyond that? And this one, there's just one section of the entire IPC. But as I started researching, as I started reading, I just realized that this subject is not just, it's not not a not a not something that you can write just two or ten pages about. It's it's huge. Because to understand sedition, you have to understand the history of sedition. Without that, you will not be able to understand how this law is on the books today. And that how it came into India of all places, even though it was not codified in English law. So there are a lot of things that went into it. And I realized it's, it's, it's not an easy journey. And then it could, took me a good one year, one year, two months to write it. But yeah, it
0: was fun. Right. Uh, so thank you so much for that. I think that uh, that sort of tells us both sort of how much uh, there is to know about various sections in the Indian Penal Code um, and also in the history and the politics of the independence movement in its own way. Uh, but Anshul, could you walk us and our listeners through uh, the main arguments of the book as well? Um, and, you know, we'd love to hear from your perspective, the journey of the provision uh, in the Indian Code.
2: Yeah, so uh, very interestingly, under any vernacular language, I'm sure I'm not, I don't know all languages in India, but I'm fairly certain that uh, these languages do not have a word for sedition. They have words for things like Deshdro means, like in Hindi, at least I can say Deshdro means treason, things like that. But other languages have similar words, but there's no particular word for sedition as such because this word did not exist in India. This this offense did not exist in India even before the Indian Penal Court was enacted. Loosely speaking, uh, before the East India Company uh, came in and started taking over parts of India, or rather we gave away parts of India, they came in with their own regulations for particular uh, regions wherever their presidencies were established. Uh, But the other regions had a mix of law uh, being uh, applied locally. Like for criminal law, mostly Islamic law was being applied. And for civil law, it was mostly Hindu law which was applied. There was no set provision. It was upon the ruler of the day, the chief of the day, who who would uh, apply the law accordingly. So there was no one penal code for all of India. And so Macaulay was uh, commissioned, if I may say. So the first law commission was created and Macaulay was the chief of the commission. And he was commissioned to codify Indian laws, and the first thing that he took up was the Indian Penal Code. And for that, he, in his notes, he says that he spoke to a lot of people, he saw a lot of laws, but mostly it was based on English laws. There was no such, uh, there were no such laws in India at that time except the regulations, the Bombay regulations, or the Bengal regulations, or the Madras regulations. And so, and most of all, he did the entire work himself. Technically, there were more people on the. Commission, but he did all of the work himself because some of them never visited India. Some of them were throughout sick. whenever they were in India, so they could not act because of their health. So Macaulay more or less did this single-handedly, and when he drafted a provision, it was, it was, it was forgotten after that. It was more or less the same as as how it was introduced in uh, in 1870, but uh, it, it it sort of it just remained the same way despite being in limbo for 30 odd years, 35 odd years. So this law was in fact, then, then uh, this law was in fact, uh, brought into 1817 to the penal code, even though it was not part of the original penal code. And it was bought in mostly because of the Wahhabis. There was a Wahhabi movement across Northern India. And the Wahhabi movement was not an, not a nationalist movement. It was more of a religious movement. It was more of a movement, uh, earlier it used to be against the Sikhs, then its focus moved to the British. So it was mostly, they 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 imagined uh, Islamist India, Islamic India in that sense, that Wahhabi movement, the Wah- Wahhabi India, if I may say so. So this was brought in essentially because of the Wahhabi movement and offences which are happening across Patna, Dhaka, Lahore, a lot of trials were held, so bans, Peacock was the person who actually brought it into the code? It is uh, credited mostly to Stephens, but it Brans he, Peacock is actually responsible for actually bringing it into the code. And that is when the uh, provision against the offense of sedition was first
1: introduced into the Indian Penal Code. So, this leads us to an interesting point in this uh, discussion, Anshul. And perhaps one thing which we perhaps should clarify for a lot of uh, listeners outside the country also is that india was an experiment in codification yeah. of laws yeah uh, the, a lot and this is something which only occurred to me much later while i was practicing as a lawyer is that british uh, it's not as if the british imported their legislation yeah. into india they used india as a testing bed for a lot of their yeah. legislation and i think the indian penal code was perhaps the first big example of that
2: yeah yeah so essentially even in england it started with bentham And uh, then he was sort of shunned from England. He moved to France. He moved to America. It was, he was just, and he, his first experiment, I think was in France, but it did not succeed there. But then the school of thought that emerged from Bentham and his disciples going on to Macaulay, they saw India as a place where they could actually bring together a certain set of laws because it was a, it was a large territory. You cannot govern such a large territory with, various laws it would not be uniform all over and even that experiment in a sense it it, it, it it they drafted something initially but it was not actually imposed till after the crown took over the government of India. So yes it was an experiment and Stephen in fact tried to create a criminal code for England but again that also that failed there that didn't happen there in India We and we to be honest I'm not a colonialist but to be honest I'm we are very fortunate to have the criminal code and the penal code. And the civil code, because otherwise it would have become very complex. Because uh, India, being so diverse, we have very different set of thoughts, very different thoughts, uh, beliefs beyond, uh, behind pros- procedure. Like in the northeast, if you would go, like I said, uh, recently wrote about a place called Kolhan in Jharkhand, which still does not uh, have any civil procedure code. There are places in the northeast and the tribal areas where they do not recognize these sort of legal systems. So India. It was an experiment. I would like to say, I don't know how much you guys will agree with me or not, but I would like to say that this codification in India has actually succeeded. Unlike in other places, it has actually succeeded.
1: And if I take a very particular parameter of that success, uh, one is, of course, it got exported. Uh, you find variants of the Indian penal code yeah. in countries as diverse as Nigeria, yeah. all the way to Singapore and Malaysia and beyond. Yeah. Um, and you find very similar provisions. For those of you who are not Indian listeners, The 419 scam actually comes from section 419 and 420 of the Indian Penal Code with slight changes in numbering uh, which deals with cheating and fraud some of you may have come across this in the context of email scams and frauds Um, the other perhaps parameter of success is how little there has been a need to change some of the substantive provisions of this right we see that the definition of murder and I think this is the most popular one, Section 302 of the Indian Penal Court, for 160 years hasn't changed. I mean, there have been lots of judgments. People have, lots of cases have come up, but nobody has yet come up with a definition of murder, which even 10% of people can agree is better than what we have on the law. But I want to come to one other point, uh, Chitranchal, and I think this is something which which needs to be placed a little bit in historical context before we go into the sedition aspect of things. The idea that the government would be limited by laws—I think that is one important point that I think sometimes gets missed in our in discussions about this, because the Code of Civil Procedure, the Code of Criminal Procedure, especially, and the Indian Penal Code mean that even the government has to follow these provisions of law before they kind of make some uh, uphold someone criminally responsible for an act.
2: Yeah so uh, see uh, unlike the unlike england where the crown was sort of the head of the political system and the parliament uh, ruled in india at that point of time even though the crown was sitting in england in india we had a government which was controlled from or rather remote control like this popular term is nowadays remote controlled from abroad and even then this is this is this is my theory of course this is my theory that they would always want their own representatives to act within a system, to act within a structure, rather than give them a free hand because they do not they not want to lose control of the bureaucracy, control of the administrative systems in India. And Britain, even before all what they did, it considered itself a civilized state. Even though earlier, I'm talking about the time of the Nanda Kumar case, they had the death penalty for forgery. So you had death penalty for forgery, but you considered yourself a civilized state. So they sort of thought that they were doing the natives a favor by giving them a system and being benevolent uh, benevolent rulers in a sense that, okay, fine, I'm ruling you, I'm, I'm imposing all sorts of uh, draconian revenue systems on you, but see, I'm making the government accountable to the parliament there or to the crown there. You have a system to work with. This has extended beyond independence also, but now it's debatable how much the government is actually working within that system or working around that system anymore. I I really don't know what it is anymore.
1: That's true. And before we get to that, there are a couple of other things. And I think sedition, because the provision has been around for such a long period of time, I think it's worth sort of going through a little bit its immediate pre-independence history, post-independence history. And of course, this provision, I suppose a lot of us have heard the stories of it before we actually read it ever. Because of the number of freedom fighters, the number of uh, people in the independence movement who were jailed, who were in some way, uh, or, you know, uh, either tormented by it in some way. Perhaps we can talk a little bit about the independence experience of uh, the sedition.
2: Yeah, so uh, when sedition was first, uh, the first case for sedition was actually in 1891. It was more than 20 years after the law was introduced. And it came from a newspaper publication in West Bengal and uh, and today's west bengal of course and then bengal and it's called the Bongobasi. what the article was in fact was again what a criticism i would say it would it could be a harsh criticism but it was a criticism of the age of consent law and it's very it's very interesting because at that time the age of consent for girls used to be 10 years and uh, you you the you, uh, me, me, uh, the man was allowed to consummate marriage when the girl was 10. And they were increasing it from 10 to 12. And that was seen as an attack on the Hindu culture of India, Hindu culture of Bengal or Bombay. And even though reformers like Tilak, they were all for increasing the age of consent, they did not want the government to do it. They wanted reforms internal. They wanted the the society to do it itself rather than getting an external force to do it for them. Because Tilak, for whatever his views were, he was a reformer in the sense of that period. But others were not as uh, as moderate about it as Tilak was. They were militant about it and they saw it as an affront to the entire system. So they wrote articles criticizing the law. And the first trial was in fact against uh, that it, it it ended in an acquittal, it ended in mistrial and acquittal later. But so the so going back to the, the to the offense itself. See sedition in England was not seen as an offence individually. Like it was not sedition individually, it could have been, uh, se- uh, it could be seditionary language used, seditionary defamation, or seditionary acts. In India, sedition has more or less been seen as a through England, uh, English history as a act of defaming the government. But the difference here is that the act of defaming the government doesn't have truth as a defence. Unlike if I defame a person, but I have the truth as defense, but if I'm defaming the government and it gives sort of rise to hatred against the government or feelings of disloyalty against the government, that's good enough for this offense of sedition to be invoked. And that was very, very strictly uh, interpreted when the law came in that simply causing or rather inciting disloyalty and hatred against the government is sufficient for the act of sedition to be uh, invoked against a person like tilak's first trial he he wrote articles criticizing the government's uh, role in curbing the plague in pune and uh, the commissioner of pune got uh, assassinated they directly linked it to his speeches and and his writing which were given during the the, uh, the ganesh chaturthi shiva the, the i'm forgetting the place shiv i'm forgetting so i'm so sorry i'm forgetting the place but at uh, the festivals, he gave certain speeches and they linked it directly to the assassination of Rand. And they said that it was because of what all he said, he is uh, guilty of sedition. So he he tried to defend it. He said it is just a criticism of the government step because what they were doing in Poonawa, they were just pulling people out, burning houses, and they were destroying property, saying that plague is spreading, we need to just evacuate everyone. People thought of it as a land grab, as a property grab by the British. And so, and the British thought that this, this is sufficient to inv- invoke sedition against him. Again, things against the Chapekar brothers. So, I'm sorry, I'm, I just lost my train of thought here a little bit. Uh, I can. not worry, we let, it.
1: we let it. Yeah, go back. Uh, we let yeah. it. Yeah.
2: So, uh, so, yeah, sedition was initially imposed very, very strictly, interpreted very, very strictly. And in fact, uh, even for the trials of Gandhi, Nehru, so, but till just before independence, there was a judgment which said that simply giving seditionary statements is not sufficient. It should either incite violence or should have a tendency to incite violence for it to become an offense of sedition. But this was quickly overruled by the Free Privy Council. They said, no, no, nothing doing. We are not going to give people that leeway to interpret this law. We have to inter- implement it very, very strictly. The freedom movement is very strong. We have to implement it very, very strictly. This must be have been the thought process, and uh, so they again curbed the the interpretation that a judge could have given to make it very, very strict. So that is how the position was still independence. Post independence, the questions came up before various high courts: Allahabad High Court, Punjab High Court, Patna High Court, Sikkim High Court and it culminated into the judgment of the supreme court in the kedarnath singh case in 1960 where they gave a judgment which said that the public order or rather the public disorder test has to be read into the law that if it incites violence or has a tendency to incite violence then it can be the offense of sedition can be imposed but unfortunately they did not they do not define what public order or disorder is to that extent so what is violence if if i if i give a statement and people go and uh, and 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 damage some park benches or streetlights. That is violence, but is that sedition? It's not. So the test, or rather how it should be tested against whether we are a democratic society today, is the government as brittle that an act of uh, vandalizing few hoardings or few parks, can it bring down this government? No, it cannot. A public disorder, every public disorder following a speech is not sedition. But that test was not laid down. So it's given given a lot of room for interpretation, over the years, and it's been abused in some cases. It's and in some cases, Supreme Court has come down and said that no, certain things are not sedition. Simply carrying arms is not sedition. Simply being part of a uh, Maoist organization is not sedition. So this and the government till very recently. Can I go into this? No. The government till very recently tried to save this provision when the challenge came up before the Supreme Court. The government said that they will lay down parameters on what the what uh, the police authorities in various states can do and not do under Section 124. And the Supreme Court said that we cannot leave it up to you. The Supreme Court said that we are passing an order, but we are requesting you not to implement it. There was no order staying the provision. There was no order injuncting the police from filing a fires under 124A. But they said that uh, whoever is uh, facing... Uh, The provision today facing trial today should be given bail. If uh, something new is registered, then immediately bail should be given instead of saying no, no, FIR can be registered. And they, in fact, told the government that now you go back. Now you see what you want to do with the law, then we'll look at it. So today the law is in a limbo. Today nobody knows what's going to happen. With the change of government, something changes. With the change of the law minister, something changes. Or the home minister, something changes. Nobody knows where the law is going today. The, the hearing was supposed to be held in July, but
1: it's still not happened. So let's see where it goes. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Anshul. And I think you've made a very important point here, which I think I want to bring a little bit to the pre-independence context also, which is the police. Yeah. Uh, and I think uh, one thing that I sort of wanted to talk a little bit about is the fact that the police in India were not like, say, a force to enforce the legitimacy for democratically elected government. The police in India, right, uh, going down to the uniforms that they wear khaki, which was military uniforms, uh, to the structure and training Uh us. I mean, then, like, let's start in the pre-independence context. It was still seen as the police force to keep the natives quiet. Uh, perhaps you can talk a little bit about the interaction between the way the police function and this kind of sedition law, which is on the books still at the moment.
2: Yeah. So uh, along with the IPC, the Indian Penal Code, there is a criminal uh, procedure code. Section 196 of the Criminal Procedure Code provides a certain safeguard. Uh, it says that the court can only take cognizance of uh, for an offense of sedition. If the state or the central government sanctions such a uh, uh, such cognizance or permits the prosecution for such uh, offence, but uh, what cognizance essentially means is that when charges are filed by the court or by the police, I'm using very uh, common terms here. When charges are filed by the police and the court has to actually see whether it has to frame charges for trial or not, that is the time when the court actually takes cognizance of. Uh, offense under Section 124A. So while there is a safeguard provided, I don't know how good or bad that safeguard is or how effective it is today. But uh, while there is a safeguard from taking cognizance, there is no safeguard from arresting people or while registering FIRs. So a constable today who is who's sitting in a small police station in uh, Jharkhand can to still today register a case under 124A against a tribal who is trying to assert his land rights, which has happened in Jharkhand. And I'm just giving a tribal's example, but it was a movement in Jharkhand. And there are policemen on record in Jharkhand and Tamil Nadu against the nuclear plant. There was a movement. There are policemen on record saying that they invoked the uh, provision to create fear amongst the population. Because there's no there's no guideline when a when a FIR can be registered under 124A. It was only in the Asim Trivedi case in Maharashtra that the High Court gave certain guidelines that uh, a law officer or a police commissioner has to first give his report whether such an offense is made out or not. Only then you can register an offense. But there's, so, there's no such Pan-India guideline. So today, a, a simple constable sitting in a small police station can register an offense against you. And as... The, the procedure is the punishment. We keep saying this, we keep shouting hoars that the procedure is the punishment. A poor tribal does not have the means to get lawyers to get bail. So he'll be sitting in uh, custody, he'll be in prison for as long as the police wants him to be. And so today, what was a weapon of the colonial police has become a weapon of a democratic police force. Because at the end of the day, the hangover still exists we, the police still feel they're the masters of the population that hangover is still there so the weapon is still there the tools are different the weapon is still there
0: No, that's a, a fascinating way of putting it and you know very much brings uh, into light the you know the questions of the way in which the police itself in india function uh, but you know there's there's something exceptional about sedition or the exceptional about this provision. It is one of very many colonial era laws that remain on the books. Uh but I, you know, would love to hear your reflections a little bit more on what it is that sets sedition apart because it lies at the intersection of the state sort of feeling insecure about itself, you know, procedure that can punish a sort of vague offense. uh, But would you know love your reflections on it as well. Yeah.
2: So section one twenty four falls within a chapter which is offense against the state. That same uh, chapter has offenses like waging war against the state. But uh, what is essentially happening today is that even when there is no offense against the state in a strict sense, uh, police forces in various states uh, use this as a as a as a tool to uh, repress civil society, if I may put it that way. And uh, Again, sorry, again, lost my train of thought. I was going somewhere and went completely. Can you just come back to the question again? Yeah, sorry, sorry, so sorry.
0: Uh, Your reflections on why Section 124A is exceptional, if at all it is.
2: Yeah, yeah. So as I was saying, so it's an offense against the state. And uh, while uh, till the time there are offenses against the state and the state has the power to prosecute people and civil society for that, it's convenient for every government to have such offenses on the books, whether they use it or not, use it as something different. The Congress was the only party, I think, which came out and said they will repeal the provision. But they've also been guilty of uh, using the provision as a tool. And after the UAPA came in, the UAPA sort of made this even stricter. They have more or less the same language in defining, uh, defining activities, unlawful activities under UAPA. At the same time, they have 124A. So they have parallel offenses and the, all governments want such offenses because thing may be hunky dory with your citizenship today. You, you may be everyone's the beloved government, but it everything unravels very quickly at times. And at that time you need certain blunt forces, blunt objects to hit your citizenry with. So that is why governments, I think would not, I I still do not think anybody will repeal sedition unless the court actually steps in and does something.
0: Right. No, I wonder. And I think also with the rise of uh, nationalistic politics everywhere and uh, a certain amount of perception of uh, insecurity amongst governments, the Uh, or the odds of uh, such a provision being repealed might be sort of uh, on the lower side. But, you know, there's another thing that I've always been wondering about, and perhaps it's a naive question, uh, but the nature of sedition uh, in and of itself um, in the contemporary era is somewhat or has, is is sort of recast particularly with the availability of technology and the way it disseminates the spread of information is there something to think about here particularly with respect to provisions around liability for intermediaries or those disseminating information because the the way in which these notions of fomenting hatred or inciting action some of the language that the provision itself uses or language around it has evolved uh, what happens of that in this, uh, in this day and age? Because there are competing interests at play in the sense that, you know, platforms, et cetera, are interested in the dissemination of such information. Um, whereas a lot of the, uh, you know, the navigation around such disaffectation can be managed through sort of keeping information contained. So, I, you know, just inviting your reflections on this, uh, this tussle.
2: Yeah. So earlier, well, even pre-independence, what would happen is that uh, the author of the of a article, a seditionary article, and the publication, the editor of the publication, would also be pulled into the prosecution. Uh, now, essentially, with the digital media coming in, you don't have like physical papers everywhere. You have something published by, let's say, the Quint in uh, Delhi or the Indian Express online. But a person sitting in Kanyakumari is reading it at the same time as a person sitting in Delhi is reading it. And what has happened uh, of of late is that uh, even though I may be writing, sitting and writing in Delhi, someone who is offended in uh Tamil Nadu will can file an FIR in Tamil Nadu against me. And not only against me, it could be for a tweet which is on Twitter or a post which is on Facebook. And the trend is to pull the platforms into prosecution as well. They are also people are trying to curb free thought on social media by pulling in the platforms into the proceedings, because then what will essentially happen is that, and what is happening in now is that the, these platforms are taking down posts when the government asks them to, to in, in order to save themselves from any prosecution and just throwing the author or throwing the original poster to the wolves in, a, in that sense. So yes, with digital age coming in, it's become more easy to for people to be harassed in different corners of the country. And as well as it's time for the platform also to think about how it is going to tackle, it. It, whether it wants to pro, pro, proceed being a neutral platform, which it, it can, but it's, it's all commerce today, it can, but nobody wants to be shut down, everyone wants ad revenue, it can. But then what happens, because the, there's no safeguard in law today, there's no safeguard, it's only certain judgments which come in that where they say that if uh, something has happened, where the defendant is actually residing, you go there and uh, file a FIR or you transfer all the prosecutions here, because recently we saw in Zubair's case uh, of uh, Alt News fame. That uh, FIRs are being filed in uh, all over uh, UP, in Delhi, in certain other places. The Supreme Court said all FIRs to be transferred to Delhi. In in an earlier time, this would have been only one location. People would have to come to Delhi to file a FIR, but now they can just do it everywhere. So with the digital age coming in, the tools
1: of harassment have become more easier in that sense. Which also brings me to something which I think is the future of sedition. Um, to bring back something which you mentioned earlier. I hope there is no future of sedition though. No. I I, I get it. I get it. I'm I'm just sort of meaning in the sense that uh, in this topic of conversation, where the future is, uh, you mentioned the Supreme Court has stayed, stayed, I'm using air quotes here, stayed the law. But, you know, as lawyers, we are still scratching our heads on exactly what this stay order means. Because as you pointed out, it's not exactly clear what the implications are. But what came through quite clearly to me from the hearings and for those of you who are interested, live law website in India carries very detailed uh, description of the arguments and stuff, what happened in court, you will see that there was a reluctance on the part of the government also to defend this law in a full-throated way. Uh, And especially the Attorney General uh, for India, Mr. KK Venugopal, (laughs) came about to say, you know, this is, sorry, can you hear me now? Yeah, okay. Uh, Afrah, we'd love to edit this also, please? Uh, the, for, for the Attorney General for India, uh, Mr. K.K. Venugopal, came out and said that this is something that the government wants to have a rethink. And I suppose it was necessitated by the fact that this is currently, when we're recording it, the 75th year of India's independence. And it would perhaps be very bad optics uh, to see, to, for the government to be seen to defending such a colonial era law. Uh, and as we have discussed, uh, there is already a provision which punishes you for waging war against India, so armed insurrection is taken care of. Uh, If minor public disorder takes place, there are already provisions in the Indian Penal Code for somebody who incites a riot or who incites (laughs) violence on a small scale in a city or whatever it is. But sedition, and to go back to something which we said, and which is the important point to make for our listeners also, is effectively defamation of the government. It even comes through from the words. So, to sort of talk about not the future of the sedition uh, itself, when we hope it goes away. Do you think, Anshul, uh, sure that it makes sense that the best, perhaps cleanest solution is to just repeal 124 Capital A, just get it out of the statute books? And do we see that that will kind of settle the debate about this? Of course. Uh, and interestingly, when the Attorney General
2: uh, tried to say that we need to relook and maybe create guidelines at the same time the solicitor general also appearing for the government said that the attorney general appearing in his personal capacity as the attorney okay. general <laughs> but the solicitor general was actually representing the views of the government mm. saying that let us consider this first do not pass any orders mm. so there was a open uh, d- open uh, difference of opinion i if, if I, it could be a difference of opinion during the court hearings where the Solicitor General was physically in court and the Attorney General was appearing through VC before the court. Mm-hmm. And the Solicitor General clearly said that I am appearing for the government. So, <laughs> yeah. the Attorney General's views may be his own views in that sense. But yeah, coming back to the point, see, on one side you call it Azadi Amrit Mohotsav and you want to shed back colonial baggage by renaming roads. I think it's a better way to shed colonial baggage is by just doing away with these draconian laws which are meant mm-hmm. for the natives, Right. Mm-hmm. And and UAPA is there for good or bad. The UAPA is there. Maybe the UAPA also needs a repeal or watering down. That's a separate question altogether. Or maybe safety walls because 124A needs to go. I have no doubts about it. What can be done after that is a different question altogether. While the government does need certain laws to protect national security, like I do not envy the government. I do not envy the Defence Ministry or the Home Ministry. They have, they are, they are, they 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 do need certain provisions to protect the government against certain elements. But, but is 124 a way to go forward? No, it is not. Is the UAP a way to go forward? I do not know. Maybe with certain safety walls. But like in the Defence of India Act, which is called the Rowlett Act, the Black Act, even that had a safety wall. Even that said that only when an emergency is notified that the dollar Act will come into play. Yeah. But the UAP has no such provisions. It's called a, it's called a prevent act for prevention of some, something. But what you're actually pro, 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 pro punishing is by not giving people bail who are accused of terrorism, because accusing people is very easy. Proving is it difficult. And once you accuse someone of something like terrorism, then that person may not get bailed for five, six years now. And this is happening. That is happening in the Elgar Parishad case. That is happening yeah. in the case against the uh, with with regard to the riots against CAA. Yeah. So does the UAPA need safety laws Yes, it does. Does it need to go away, uh, be done away with completely? That's a question I'll I I would rather not answer at this time. But 124A, yes, it needs to go.
1: Thank you, Anshul. And I think that sort of brings us very squarely to perhaps maybe the jumping point for your next book, hopefully, uh, if you will be working on one, which is not the future of sedition, but perhaps the way our criminal legislations in some senses um, kind of increase police power at the expense of uh, citizens' rights. And I think this is the deep irony of the conversation that we are having which is that here we are 75 years after independence. Here we are 72 years after the constitution of India came into effect. We are talking about a law which was 70 years old by the time the constitution came into effect. And we are still thinking about how do we get rid of this? We haven't actually gotten rid of it. And instead, what we find and coming to the closing point that you have sort of made, this idea that we can empower the police to silence, citizens' critiques, dissent has seeped into other parts of it. The Unlawful Activities Prevention Act, which you mentioned, which we see is being used against opponents in civil society and now increasingly even against political opponents. I think this is something which perhaps we need to worry about, that it is not just Section 124, Capital A of the Indian Penal (laughs) Code that may be one manifestation of this deeper problem, but perhaps we may need to think uh, about... uh, Uh, a deeper uh, problem that we see with the nature of the Indian state. Uh, Before we close, maybe one last thought from you about where do you sort of see this larger reform of Indian police and Indian criminal legislation going? What do you see could fundamentally spark this kind of change?
2: Yeah, because, uh, see, like like you said, it needs to go away. Even England has done away with the law. Uh, People who gave us the law have done away with the law. But we still have it. And police reform in India is actually something which I feel very, very strongly about. Uh, we need to have a uh, have a procedure in place or a system in place which creates accountability. Today, these uh, laws, they, uh, they protect public officials from acts which are done to carry out the law. But whether it's been done maliciously or whether it is bona fide, that is something that the courts essentially do not never go into. In Nambi Narayan's case, they went into it. They, the Supreme Court gave uh, uh, compensation to Nambi Narayan, but when it came to the Akshardham accused who acquitted, the Supreme Court refused, saying it will open up, uh, open up floodlights. So you can't have a system where the judges can pick and choose where they want to give com- compensation, where they don't want to give compensation. There has to be a statute in place. To create such accountability because till the time, there's no accountability. Whatever police reform policy you might bring in, it is not going to work. It is not going to work because the audacity, the brazenness is never going to reduce. Now, uh, there's an example of uh, recent examples now. Wherever the police are not following the Arnesh Kumar guidelines, like uh, for the other listeners, Arnesh Kumar guidelines have been framed by the Supreme Court. Which say that in cases where the punishment is seven years or below you have to first give a notice to the accused before you arrest him arrest them and it's given powers to the high courts in various territories that where these guidelines are not being followed punish the policeman responsible punish him for contempt punish him send him to prison and that is what certain high courts have already done they've sent the the errant policeman to prison because they've failed to follow those guidelines. So now I, I am personally seeing the sense of fear being created in the policeman's mind that, okay, fine, I need to give a notice first. Oh, whether they arrest the person a day after that or two days after that is different, but they are giving that notice first. So that sense of fear has to be created. I'm actually calling it a sense of fear because our police force is fearless. They know nothing is going to happen to them. That sense of fear has to be brought in by judicial intervention because I do not see the parliament enacting
1: any such statute. Till the time that does not happen, police reforms are not going to happen across the country. That's great. And I think that's the note to end on. How can we turn the fear of the law from the citizens to the police? And I think that's possibly the way that uh, the path of reform lies ahead in India. Uh, But thank you so much, uh, Anshul, for having spared uh, your time for this conversation. Uh, This has been a fascinating discussion. Uh, we have covered quite a bit of ground and for our listeners, they've only scratched the surface of the depths that uh, Jitranshul's uh, uh, please do pick up his book. It's available on most major platforms. Uh, you will find links in our uh, description. And once again, uh, I'd like to thank you all uh, for having tuned in. Uh, I hope uh, this was an interesting conversation for you and uh, I'd like your, to encourage you all to stay tuned for more episodes. Uh, on that note, I'd like to thank Thank you for joining us. Thank you, guys, and of course, uh, uh, and our production assistant uh, uh, Afra, who has been uh, patiently helping us with this process. And with that note, uh, I'd like to say bye on behalf of Saryu and me. Bye, see you. Bye. Bye Bye. Bye.